And uh, so this morning, we're, gonna, we're coming to the end of our series that we've been doing for here for a while called Come and Go. And we really wanted to get back to the basics of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus asked his disciples to do two things. The first one was, uh, come. He said this in Matthew 4, come, follow me, and I will make you. And then in Matthew 9, he says, go and make disciples. And so it's very simple. He says, Come to me and I will make you fishers of men. Come to me and I will fill you with the power of God. Come to me and I will heal you, redeem you, restore you. I'm going to do a work inside you. And then out of that abundance, I want you to go and to show people my light, to show them the transforming power of what I can do in their lives. And so that's really the heartbeat behind this series. And I hope that you guys have learned something. I hope that it's inspired you to be followers and closer followers of Jesus Christ. And as we've been talking about, though, the culture and the world around us is tempting us and distracting us like crazy to get our eyes off of. Is there somebody behind me? I'm hearing voices. Donna, we can go to therapy together. You're hearing your cats talk back. I I thought for sure there was a voice. I'm sorry. Nobody heard that. Okay, I'm losing my mind. Where was I? All right. Well, I'm being tempted and distracted <laughs> from de- taking our eyes off of Jesus. Uh, there we go. Perfect timing. And I think that just the year has probably just been this perfect storm. Uh, why in the world did we have to have an election during a global pandemic? That was a bad idea. Uh, but there, there's all these things coming together. And that's not even talking about the personal things that's going on in some of your lives. And then you add in that and it can feel just pretty overwhelming. And and like we've been talking about these, I think these are trials and tests. And if you're here this morning, or if you're watching online, you're wanting to be able to find some answers and to continue to hold on to your faith and to dig deep in your relationship with the Lord and to know him more in the midst of that. And really what this is revealing, what it's exposing all of this, it's this question, who am I a disciple of? And who am I really following? Who am I a disciple of and who am I really following? It's exposing if we're followers of a political party first before Jesus or if we're following this person or this thing before Jesus. And here's the test. This is what I'm actually learning right now. I'm going to bring you in on this. And I've been kind of referencing it here and there. And I probably will have a lot more to share down the road once I feel like God completes this work that he started in me in this area. But this is what I've been doing, and I would encourage you to do this. Sit quietly for 30 minutes and just see where your soul drifts to. No music, no no, no praying. I mean, that's all good, but not during this time. 30 minutes, just sit there quietly and just see where your soul drifts. Pay attention to where your thoughts go to, where your thoughts going. What feelings are being stirred up in you? What are those feelings making you want to do or not do? And just let, listen to your soul. Listen to what what, what is in your soul. Because I think the danger of going through difficult times is all the stuff starts piling up in our soul and we become unaware of it because we stay busy. And then it starts coming out in very destructive ways. And so what I'm learning is to quiet myself to be able to quiet my, my mind and to, and to quiet the, the noise around me and to allow 
myself just to let my soul drift to, to find out what is going on in my soul. And then after that 30 minutes, I take it before the Lord. This is actually what David did in the book of Psalms. I've been studying the book of Psalms and how David spent time with the Lord because the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And so David, you could tell he was doing these meditation times and he was pouring out then to the Lord what was going on in his soul. And he, by the way, guys, there's some scary stuff in there. I mean, there is some pretty dark stuff that he starts talking about. And you're like, whoa, David, whoa. I mean, he, he says things like, my, my, my soul and my body are withering away. How am I going to be rescued from this? I am dying. You know, he just like, he is having a bad day. But he pours this out to God and God starts doing this transformational work in his own heart. And by the, by the end of the psalm or a few psalms later, he's praising God. Thank you that you're my restorer. You're my redeemer. You're my healer. I, I choose to be able to do your will and to forgive. And, and I, I've been having these moments, these, these David moments with the Lord. And it has been so refreshing for my soul. And so I just want to bring that, take it for what it's worth. I just want to bring that, take 30 minutes just to be completely quiet. And then out of that, start talking to God of what what came up. Does that make sense here this morning? I think it's a great exercise right now in the midst of all the noise around us. Now, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, uh, from what I see on Facebook, a lot of us have our souls packed full right now with politics. No amens. All right. You know, even I've been affected by this too, church. I'm in, I live on the same planet called Earth, just like you. In the same country, the United States, just like you. But I, I want to remind us here this morning that this is not our home. Our citizenship is first, the Bible says, in heaven. And that this, we're just passing through. The Bible says we're sojourners. We're passing through. We're, we're temporary residents we have a temporary residence card that we carry as Christians and that our citizenship is actually in heaven and that the goal of our lives is to reflect Jesus and to show other people this kingdom, the place that we have our primary citizenship. That's the whole point. Our lives is to reflect there's another kingdom. And here's the evidence. I have joy and peace and life because I'm tapped into and connected to a different kingdom with a different king who is like what Donna was saying is still on the throne. And that when people start seeing that, they can, they can have an escape from the, the sorrow of trying to make this world work out like they want it to because we're tapped into a different kingdom. And so my hope this morning is to pull us back to eternity, back to the narrow road, back to getting our eyes on Jesus alone. And so this morning, we're going to talk about legacy, what it looks like to be fully invested for eternity. And in the last couple of years, we've, we've done a message on legacy. We've, we've really focused on this legacy message. So this is that message here this morning. There's a scripture that immediately came to my mind when I started preparing this message. Here it is. It's 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Now, I like this scripture because it's so, uh, it's so good for the, where we live. If you didn't notice this morning, you drove to church and you drove in the middle of a cornfield to get to church. You are sitting in the middle of a cornfield right now. Now we put some parking places here in a building for you, but there's, 
there, it's corn all the way around us. And so uh, if, if you, if you want to guess what the scripture is going to be like in the spring, it might have something to do with this, planting and harvesting. I just love this scripture because, again, I think all of us can see it with our, our own eyes of how this plays out. Remember, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. The other thing that I really like about this scripture, it's just matter of fact. It's a God law. It's like gravity. Now you can disagree with get gravity all you want. And you can say that gravity doesn't exist, but you are still subject to gravity. And this is the, this is the kind of God law where whether you uh, believe in God or not, or believe in the Bible or not, it's just a God law that what you sow, you will reap. Now other religions use different terms like karma. And it's the same concept. Oh, you're going to get that back. If you're going to do that, oh, just wait, that's coming back to you. And here's the, here's the truth. There is truth in that. It's a God law, but I don't like the attitude about it because it's vengeance. It, it can sound so vengeful. Man, you just wait. Karma, buddy. <laughs> that, that, that is not God's heart. Uh, God says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. Get your hands off of that. You don't get to repay. God's the one that's in charge of that when it comes to of it coming back, so to speak. And so I, I like the scripture because it's just matter of fact, it's just true. Now here's the other truth. And all of us are planting some kinds of seeds. So it matters how much we're planting, but it also matters the, the kind of seed we're planting. It's just a matter of fact, the, the kind of seeds we're planting. Galatians 6, 7 says this, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. Let me go ahead and just translate that here. If we're going to harvest, or if we're going to plant selfishness and pride and ego and, and anger and arguments and strife, guess what we're probably going to get back on our life? You see a culture right now that is sowing like crazy anger, division, strife. And then we're like, why is this happening? I'm like, because that's what we're sowing. And so that's what you reap. You know, people are so surprised at how angry others are, but yet we become unaware when our anger is sowing the very same thing. And I think, again, that's why it's so important to get away with God and to give him time of quietness, because I think it brings awareness to what's going on in our soul that we're end up sowing. And so it goes the same thing. If, we, if you sow love and kindness and gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, guess what you get back? The same thing. And so the kind of seed really matters. Let me keep on reading here. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. That's just what I said, what I just said. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Now, this is why I think, this is my theory, and I, I'm taking a lot of liberty with the scriptures right now. This is why I think the Apostle Paul said that. Because when, when we see a world that is, is just kind of out of control and doing their own thing, it's really easy to be like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, then why should I? Have you guys ever worked at a job and there was a bad employee that never showed up, terrible attitude, and they kept their job? And, and you were just like, if they're not going to, 
care if they're not going to do their job and I'm over here working so hard doing mine, then we're getting the same pay. Who cares? I'm just going to, I'm going to be like them. Have any guys ever been tempted to do that at your job before? Okay. I, I, I think it's a, a real thing. And this is where the apostle Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't give in to that. Make sure that you don't give up in doing good because at the right time, you're going to reap a harvest of blessing. When everyone around you is, is doing it differently or the world's way, stay true. Don't give up. God says, don't give up. You will reap a harvest of blessing. Now, like I said, we see this play out in our lives when it comes to our finances, eating habits, working out or not working out, relationships, marriage, of what we sow what we plant, that's what we get back. And I think uh, when it comes to friendships, you know, I think it's really important for us to be able to say, what am I sowing into friendships? Because that's what I'm going to get back. And so if we have rich friendships, more than likely, it's because we sowed into those relationships in order to be able to have that generosity of relationship. And I, I, as I was going through this message, I was, was just be- becoming very thankful of, of I'm a very rich man relationally. I'm a very rich man. I, I have very rich relationships at, at every level. And if I had nothing else, that would be enough for me. A rich relationship with God, with my family and my wife, with friends, with the church family. I'm a, I'm a rich man. And, but it requires, it, it had to require some, some planting, some seeds in relationship in order to be able to reap that. So let me ask you, what kinds and what quantity of seed are you planting? I want you to think about that. What kind of seed are you planting? And what's the quantity of that seed? Now to help you try to think through that, you know by what you're harvesting. You know by what you're harvesting. If you are sowing a lot of something, you are seeing it spring up. You're seeing it take root and you're seeing the, the harvest of that. And so if you're, if you're having a lot of dysfunctional relationships in your life, it's really good to take a step back and go, hmm, I wonder if I'm sowing anything in that's causing that. Or if we're having lots of financial issues, not always, I'm not, I'm not saying these are perfect things, but we have to take a step back and say, what am I sowing in when it comes to finances? Am I being reckless in my spending? And so then I'm reaping brokenness. You know, I think that it's important for us to look at the fruit and to be able to see what am I sowing? Is it good fruit, bad fruit? Do I like what I see? Do I want to change that? Now, before we start feeling really bad and guilty here this morning, I want to pull us back off that ledge a little bit because I want to get back to our source of motivation for why we sow. Because I think it can be kind of depressing here to be able to sit as I'm talking and sharing this with you. Maybe this is you here sitting and you start having some regrets. Yeah, I didn't sow very well into that relationship and wasn't very smart with my money. And I don't want you to go there, okay? I want you to avoid that pitfall of feeling, feel, being filled with this guilt or this shame. Because I want to get back starting today. What can be the motivation for why we want to sow generously? 
How can we grow in this generous sowing as disciples? And then how we, can we sow into others to make disciples? And so here's the first one. As disciples who come to learn from Jesus, we must become generous people. It's actually a command in the scriptures that his, his followers, his disciples would be generous people. But it's a generosity that flows from remembering what Jesus has done for us. And let me just say that again. It's a generosity that flows from remembering what Jesus has done for us. So there's a story in the Gospel of Luke where the Bible describes this immoral woman who pours this expensive perfume over Jesus' feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. And she just gave her best, her all. And then the Pharisees, the, the Pharisees are sitting back. This is how I see it in my head as I read this story. I can't believe you, Jesus. I can't believe you're giving this lady the time of day. Don't you know that she is a sinner? The Bible says that that she is a sinner. What is Jesus doing? Hanging out with this filthy sinner. One of his own disciples, who was Judas, the one who betrayed him, in another gospel talks about how he wanted her to sell the expensive perfume to give to the poor so that actually I think that he could pocket it and he could make some money off it too because he was in charge of the money box as uh, Jesus and the disciples were going around. And so Jesus is having this, this environment happening around him. And then he says this to Peter. He said, then Jesus told him, Peter, this story, a man loaned money to two people, 50 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the, or to the 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. And I want you to hear this next line, church. It's really important. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Here's my point. I want you to hear me on this this morning. The reason why this immoral woman was fully invested and gave her all church was because she came to Jesus and was forgiven of all of her sins and she knew it. And her response was, I'm gonna give my life to you. I, I've realized that you have forgiven me, an immoral woman of all of these sins. Therefore, my response, I'm giving you my life. See, when I'm failing at loving others well and having compassion, I know for myself, it's usually because I have forgotten all that I've been forgiven of. I told this story before, but it was one of the first times that the Lord checked me on this. When I was start, I just started doing youth ministry. I was a youth pastor here at Cross Point. And I'd found out what some of the students were up to, and it was no good. <laughs> and I'm walking back to the youth room 
uh, for our Sunday night meeting. And I am just grumbling inside. I can't believe these students are out doing this stuff with girls, drinking, doing all this. Oh my gosh. And the Holy Spirit just knocked me dead in my tracks and says, Kevin, don't you ever forget what I've done for you. Because the very things that I was upset about with them was the very things that Jesus saved me from. I was participating in all of those things that I was mad about before giving my life to Jesus. And he saved me from all that. And here's my point. Let us never forget, church, all that we've been forgiven of. Do you know all that you've been forgiven of? Do you see yourself as Jesus has forgiven me of my many, many sins, just like he forgave this immoral woman of her many, many sins? Because if you have a revelation and understanding of that, it will change you. It will transform you. It will cause you to live completely different, just like this woman. Nobody had to tell her, you better pour all that perfume onto his feet, otherwise you're not enough. It was just her reaction. This man is forgiving me of all my sins. All my life is now his. I'm giving everything to him. See, when we come to Jesus and repent because we become aware of what God has forgiven us, then our response becomes, God, I am fully invested. I'm fully invested. My life is yours. And I'm going to go to leave your legacy here on this earth as it is in heaven. See, generosity flows from an inward transformation. Generosity flows from an inward transformation. Let me show you a time this happened in the Bible. It's in the book of Acts. After Jesus died and rose again, Peter gets up and he boldly tells them, Here's, here's your history, Israelites. And he starts going through their history. And then at the end of this, he talks about the prophets and this coming Messiah. And then at the end of this, he says to them, he says, you crucified Jesus. Now, can you imagine sitting in that sermon as Peter is talking about the whole history of their, their nationality, their race, their religion. And then at the end of it, he says, and there's a Messiah who was prophesied that he was going to come. His name was, is Jesus and you crucified him. How many of you guys, you think that if you were sitting in that sermon, that would get your attention? Be like, oh, this isn't good. Here's the response to this. Acts 2.37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. They understood, church, of their many, many sins. And they said to him and to the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then it goes on to say, and you'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 41 those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Isn't that wild? 3,000 people in that moment understood their sin, repented of their sins, turned to Jesus. And now look at their response in Acts 2.44. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. I want to just do a side note here. 
this this doesn't really connect with a big point, but I want to use a scripture to uh, clarify something because I think some of us kind of get confused with this communion stuff because we grew up with this doing communion maybe at your church. And so I want to show you what was happening. And by the way, communion at church is awesome. Uh, Once this COVID stuff, if if it does end, we we will get back to that. But I want to point out something here. It says they worship together at the temple each day. So we gather once a week. The, the Bible says they were coming every day to worship together. And then it says they met in home for the Lord's Supper. So they weren't ha- participating in this situation uh, for their communion, the Lord's Supper at the church service. They were just worshiping there. They were going out together and remembering the Lord's death and resurrection, breaking bread together, eating together, fellowshipping together, uh, not in the church, but it was outside of the church. And then it says, and they they were sharing meals together with great joy and generosity. Here's my point. Most of the life of the church was not happening in the church, the building. It was happening outside of the church. And that's why you have a sign. We have a sign here that as you leave, it says, now you're entering your mission field. Because the life of the church, we come together to rejoice, to encourage each other, to worship together in church. Just like it says here. But God's desire is that the church is... Most, most of their activity would actually be outside of the church, all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. Here's my point. This was a large-scale revival happening. You have over 3,000 people getting saved, all coming together, worshiping. Can you imagine how loud that is? 3,000 people newly converted to Jesus and realizing how God had forgiven them of their many, many sins. I bet you it was loud. Their worship services were really loud, I bet. And then, and then you have this beautiful fellowship, unity, eating together, praying together, here's what I believe, and and you guys might feel different. I believe it can happen again. I believe it can happen again. I I believe God wants it to happen again. And I believe it's not that complicated. All it takes is a lot of individuals having personal revivals, and it turns into this corporate revival. You had 3,000 people make individual decisions. Yep, yep. I'm going to follow Jesus and I need to ask for forgiveness of my sins. And when you have that big a mass happen at the same time, that's when corporate revival breaks out. It's that simple. Of a mass amount of people understanding that Jesus has forgiven them of their sins, coming to him and being fully invested, revival breaks out. It's my prayer. It's my hope. It's my dream that I'll one day get to be part of revival like this. I want to see that. I want to see a large-scale revival. I, I, I've read a lot of books about them, by the way. It's something that excites me. Where I've read about revivals through since, since Christ and revivals in America, the Great Awakenings. If you guys ever want to stir up your faith a little bit, read, a, read revival books about the Great Awakening. And every time I read them, I'm like, yeah, that's really cool. I love that, but man, I wish I was part of that. I wish I was there for that. And I'm telling you, would you, would you join me with praying for revival? That, that we would do as what I think it's Jeremiah, if his people who are called by his name would humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way. He would heal their land and pour out his spirit and heal their disease. That's the solution to our national problems, by the way. It's not trying to get the, the big government 
to do what we want and then our life's good. It's actually the other way around. It's us individually loving each other well, living in unity in our home, in our marriages, in our family, in our church, in our businesses. And that translates to the big government. It happens on the the organic, the grassroots level. And when you have enough of that happen, it transforms a government. A government is simply a byproduct of where the people are at. And you may not like the government, but you, you have to admit it's just a byproduct of where people are at. And so if you start having large-scale revivals breaking out across America where God's people humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and remember the many, many sins that Jesus has forgiven them, and we start having that break out across our land, guess what happens to our government? It gets healed and united because God's people get healed and united. That's how it happens. And so the one person that I can control in all this, the only one is me. I can control whether or not I'm going to let the Holy Spirit move in me and have a personal revival. And hopefully that becomes contagious enough where it inspires some other people to do the same. And likewise for you. Look at chapter, two chapters later, Acts 4.32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. And I think you guys need to understand some of the cultural context. And I'm not, uh, you probably know this, but I'm just going to tell you, there wasn't a big welfare system then. There was nobody taking care of these people. If the church or somebody else didn't take care of them, they went hungry. They, they, they went without a house or clothes or whatever. There was, no, there was no net. There was no hammock. There was nothing. And so the church had an amazing opportunity to say, we're going to say it's our job to take care of them. And as we show them the love of God and as we take care of them, they're going to understand who God is and give their life to him. And that, there was a big, massive move happening then. And I know, guys, I know it's complicated here to do the same thing because we, there, there is other, other resources and outlets that are even good ones. But it's different now, so I understand that. But I, I think that it's so important for us to realize a generosity that came out of this desire to see the move of God happen in people's lives. That's why they did it. It wasn't, it was more than a humanitarian thing. And here's the other thing I want to point out here. I don't hear guilt and shame for the reason why they were giving. I don't hear them go, man, I better give or else the apostle Peter, he's going to get on me about this. I better give. Otherwise, you know, Bill over here, he gave. And so if I don't give, I don't, I didn't hear any guilt or shame. And maybe I'm wrong. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. But what I hear is I hear people who are so in love with God and thankful for what he has done for them that they became fully invested and became generous. What I hear are people that had their lives transformed and without anyone telling them, they, were, they just wanted to be able to give. They wanted to be able to bless. They wanted to pour out their life as a liquid offering. There was a transformation that happened in their lives. And I can relate to this uh, to a little bit on a smaller degree. When I first gave my life to the Lord and I started going to church, the pastor never talked about money or giving. There was never a basket being passed. 
And so when I, when I had Jesus start transforming my life and my heart, I had this desire to want to give. And so I showed up to church one day and I had, I had my money that I wanted to be able to give. And I was like, I don't know how this works. Uh, where, where, how do you give to this place? And so I actually went up to the pastors afterwards, him and his wife. And I said, hey, um, can you give here? And he's, they're like, yes. And I was like, can you tell me how I can give here? And you have to understand is that our town, uh, there was just such a bad uh, reputation about the church demanding money and, and doing it in weird ways. And so they were not wanting anything to do with that. And so they, they would never talk about money. They would never, you know, pass baskets or whatever. And so I was like, I, I'm having my life completely changed for Jesus. I really want to give and serve and help. Do you have anything that I could do here at the church? Like, can I clean? Can I scrub some toilets? I mean, seriously, you, my wife, she was there around that during that time too. She'll say the same thing. I lived at that church for like two years. I was there all the time. And not because anyone told me I had to be. It's just because it was this outflow of the Lord had transformed my life. And now I wanted to be able to give. I wanted to give back. Now it's changed. I have a family now and, 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 and now they're my number one place that I go to first for giving and to pouring out and my time and energy that way. But it still comes, church, what my point is, when it comes from a transformed life, it's such an amazing thing. When God can get a hold of us like that and transform us and, and move in us, then we just want to. We want to do it. And I'm not saying this to toot my own horn. Absolutely not. It wasn't even me. I can't even take credit for it. It's by, by, by the grace and the love of God that was compelling me to want to serve him and serve his kingdom. And that's what I want our generosity. Let our giving come from a transformed life, not a religious act. Here's what I don't think these believers knew. The God legacy that they were leaving behind. I don't think they realized that they were giving seed money for over 2,000 years of Christianity. I don't think they realized that their names were going to be written in the history books and in the Bible because they gave it all. Their giving, and I'm convinced of it, was the seed money. They sowed everything they had into that spiritual ground so that Christianity would explode across the earth. And it did. And it did. And I believe that God is asking us to be able to give generously so that we can have a generous return. And I'm not even saying about our church right now. I'm talking about the next generation. I think the best evidence for how well the previous generation sowed in was what the fruit of it for the current generation. The best evidence for us and how well we sowed in will actually not really be known until the next generation. And then we'll be able to see how well we sowed and, and because of the generosity of that harvest coming back. And so as disciples, we must become generous and then we go and we make disciples. We must learn how to use our generosity to invest in God's kingdom. Now I know that the tendency here, and, and maybe you guys are, some of you guys are thinking here this morning, and I've done this too when I've heard a message like this, immediately you go, gosh, am I gonna have to sell everything? <laughs> Oh, does this mean, honey, does this mean we got to sell our home? I don't, I don't want to sell our home. I want somewhere to sleep. You know, you kind of get in that a little bit. And you guys, you know what I'm talking about? We're like, oh, compared to those Christians, I'm just, I'm not very good. I, I don't think I would sell everything or sell my land. If I had land, I wouldn't even sell it. You know, it, it, we can get into this really 
religious thinking about it or feeling guilt and shame. And again, I want to pull you back off of that because it's not about that at all. Remember, the, I don't see in the scriptures that the apostles were saying, you better go sell everything. You better sell all your land. I don't see that. There, I don't see that there. And so I'm a little leery if a, a preacher starts telling, hey, they sold all their stuff. You guys better too. No, 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 no. That's actually the, not the right heart. The heart was there's a transformed lives that happened. And without anyone asking anything of them, they just gave. In my opinion, these religious questions get boiled down. And here's what's really true. What really matters is give sacrificially. I think that's a scriptural mandate. And I would say not just, you guys know, I'm not just talking about money, but money is a big part of it. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, the Bible says. But to be able to give of our time, to be able to give of our talent, our resources. And I just can't say it any better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. So I, I, we're, we're going to end with this quote here by C.S. Lewis. He said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. He's saying, I don't think I can settle that for you. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity, charity's expenditures exclude them. For many of us, the great obstacle to charities lies not in our luxurious living or desire for more money, but in our fear, fear of insecurity. This must often be recognized as a temptation. Sometimes our pride also hinders our charity. We are tempted to spend more than we ought on the showy forms of generosity, tipping and hospitality, and less than we ought on those who really need our help. I just love this quote because it becomes very individual at that point. Is your giving and generosity, do you feel it? Now, immediately when I read this, I thought of this story when I was a youth pastor years and years ago. Now, and uh, this, this uh, youth student, he was telling me about how all of his friends have all these other things that he doesn't have. And how they, this one friend had a lake home. And he didn't have a lake home. I know, first world problems, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, why? He goes, did you ask your parents about this? He goes, yes. And I said, do your parents make a lot less than this? this uh, other family you're thinking about? He goes, no, they told me they probably make about the same, but they just choose to be able to give it for God's stuff instead of that. <laughs> oh, come on. We make some, no, that's awesome. I mean, he didn't say it very awesome, but I was like, yes, yes. What he was really saying was his parents were making a choice to let their generosity, uh, hurt a little bit. Maybe hurt's not the best word, but where, where they, they felt it. They, they, they turned down other really good things that they could have, like a lake home, so that they could be generous for God's kingdom. That's pretty awesome. And that's what I'm talking about. 
That's what I'm talking about. And do you realize the impact I'm sure that had on that student? To see his parents that generous, where he knew that his parents could have had a lot more stuff, but instead chose to sow for the kingdom of God instead. That's powerful. And so that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of generosity that God is calling us to. But remember, it comes not out of religious duty or obligation. It comes out of this, God, you have forgiven me so, so much and so many sins. And therefore, I want to be able to give my life for you. We have a chance to do this, church, to put our generosity into practice in a year that should make it harder for us to give we get to show the world that our God is bigger than our, than our circumstance and he loves his people who are struggling so much. And so like what we did the last few years around here, we're gonna ask our three congregations and this year we're gonna try to get some other churches involved to be able to take up an offering for our community to be able to bless our schools like what we've done in previous years. It's what we call our legacy challenge to give over and above our tithes and our offering. And with everything that comes in, I, you got to hear me on this, 100% of it goes right back out to bless our community. And this year we're choosing our local elementary schools. We've done our high schools, our, our middle schools. And so now we're going to do our uh, elementary schools. And I, I, I said this last year when we were meeting with the teachers is that uh, we have a very common vision. We're both after influencing the next generation for good. And so that's why we have, we have partnered up with the schools to be able to just show them that, that we love them, that we're behind them, that we want to see the next generation blessed. And so on December 6th, two weeks away, we're going to ask you to make a special offering. And if, if you can't do it there, there's going to be some time because we normally don't distribute until around the Christmas time and even maybe even after uh, until the new year. Uh, so if you want to give another time, that's okay. But I want you to take time to pray about this. And again, no one's going to force you. No one's keeping track. But it just goes with 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It says this, you must each in your heart decide how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Why, why do we give cheerfully? Because we know what we've been forgiven of. And we realize that our sin has been wiped away. And our response is, I just want to give. We simply want to make a difference in our city, church, for those that are making a difference in the next generation. Crosspoint, you're, you're a generous church. And in previous years, we've been blown away with how much you've given. Uh, the, I think last year was over $25,000 that we were able to distribute to our schools. And uh, you have to know the impact that it has on these teachers as some of them just weep. Others are just standing, just stunned. Just, their faces completely stunned that we would do that and be this kind and generous. And so let's make a difference in our community. And that's what we're here to do, to be able to impact our community. We're not here to be a club. We're here to reach our world with our stuff, our money, and our time. See, none of that's going to last forever but the impact we make for God's kingdom will. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you guys stand to your feet here this morning? Amen. Father, I just thank you. I thank you that you have forgiven us of so many sins. Can we, it's, it's quiet in here. Can we make a little bit of noise? Just can you start thanking God right now for all the sins that he's forgiven you? God, thank you. Thank you that you have forgiven me you have forgiven us of so much. You've forgiven us of our many, many sins. God, you have forgiven us of, in all the ways that we have been disobedient. Lord, thank you for that. 
Thank you, God. I ask that right now that you would remind us. God, would you remind us? Would you become aware again what it was like when we first experienced, when we first realized the forgiveness that happened in our lives and what you forgave us of. May you remind us right now that even the sins that you forgave us yesterday, even maybe this morning in the drive-in to church, that you have already forgiven us of those sins. You've forgiven us of the sins that we're gonna commit. You've forgiven us of them, Lord. And so God, I ask that we'd have a greater revelation, a greater revelation, not only of just the sins that we commit, but a revelation of how much you have forgiven them. And Lord, out of that incredible understanding, may we respond like the men and women did in the book of Acts. And may it stir us up, God. May you stir us up. Stir us up for revival. Stir us up for surrender. Stir us up for repentance. Stir us up to this turning back to God. Stir us up in our gentleness and our kindness towards each other. Stir us up in our boldness to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, stir us up to open up our hearts, to open up our mouth, to open up our pocketbooks. Stir us up. God, I don't want any dead religion where we're doing it out of duty or obligation or guilt trips or or feeling pressure. God, I don't want any of that. Lord, I I want a generosity that comes out of this pureness of a transformed life. And so, Lord, I'm first asking that you would transform our hearts and our lives and our mind, and you would transform them from that transformation. The fruit of it would be good. So, Lord, teach us how to sow good seeds for eternity. Teach us, Lord, what it looks like to sow generous seeds. Lord, that our fields would be ripe. Lord, I ask that what we see outside around this church, an abundant harvest, Lord, we would see that as souls in our cities, that, that what is happening in the natural would happen in the supernatural, would happen in the spiritual. Lord, as we see the harvest time coming in, Lord, I'm asking you that you would move, you would send armies of angels, you would stir up heaven for on our behalf to be able to come and have a harvest of souls in South Central Wisconsin. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God some praise here this morning.